was the first real sound that had ever been transmitted to a human ear by electricity. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 7 of The Music Dissectors, recorded August 19th, 2017. I'm your host David Holloway and with me as always is Matthew J.C. Powell, major U2 fan and all-round good guy. How are you, Matthew? (laughs) (laughs) Why do you do that to me? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll cop to major good guy, or all-round good guy. You, um, you, You two... Tolerator, uh, <laughs> you two tolerator. That that's a good job title. I like that. <laughs> Someone needs well, to keep them honest. I I, I have uh, my my sister is an enormous fan of you two, uh, so I have um, learned to uh, tolerate's probably the best word. Keep, keep, keep my counsel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not worth causing sibling issues over a band. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, they're, 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 they're not my absolute number one favorite. Let's put it that way. No, um, but as we alluded to, and I was worried after we did, I did allude to last episode that the next album would be you two. I thought it'd be just my luck, and we won't be able to secure our guest. But we did. So, I mean, our guest this week is Ken Lee, um, a musician and photographer. Ken Lee. And I I remember, I will link to that. I actually will link to the YouTube (laughs) video in the show notes. So Ken himself, um, I believe, finds that very amusing, that video. So um, you'd have have to. um, It's a funny, funny video. It was American Idol, wasn't it? Anyway, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, uh, Something like Bulgaria's Got Talent or something. Yeah, something, something like that. So yeah, Ken Ken's based out of Los Angeles um, and has um, yeah come to us to talk about U 2s Unforgettable Fire, um, and we, we cover a lot of ground. And I, I think actually, let's let's be honest with ourselves. Okay, I I, I do slag off U two because they got it coming, but overall, it's not actually a bad album. No, not actually a bad album. As long as you don't think of it too much as a U two album, <laughs> but we'll get into that. We will. So yeah, have a listen and let's hear let's hear more about this non U two U two album. Hi, Ken. Thanks for joining us across time zones. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Because what, what part of the U.S. do you live in, Ken? I'm in Los Angeles. So right now it's probably not quite 40 degrees, but approaching there. That's... Maybe maybe 
as in yeah, yeah, Celsius. That's, that's Celsius. I've, I've translated for you. Yeah, you're, you're a good man. So Ken and I um, have known each other. It's a bit like Matthew, you and I. We've known each other for a number of years but have never met face-to-face, although Ken and I have more of an excuse not to meet face-to-face than <laughs> you and I do. But um, so we, we've been involved as musicians on um, those good old-fashioned forums since uh, be the mid or oh, early 2000s probably, wouldn't it be, Ken? Early I think early 2000s, I, uh, because I joined Music Player 2001, I believe. Yeah, so so we, we both frequented a keyboard forum over those years. Um, and so um, Ken was an obvious person to ask to come on the, the podcast um, because he, he's a um, one hell of a musician, but he's also got a, a great artistic temperament. And, and I think it's fair to say, Ken, probably your equal or probably bigger passion is photography. Is that fair to say? I think so. At this point, at this point, it occupies even more of my time than music, although not by much. Um, <clears throat> um, it's relatively new too, because I've been doing music pretty much my entire life and recording music my entire adult life. But um, the photography, I didn't start getting into it until I discovered night photography, and I just was really immediately passionate about that in in a way that I'm only passionate about uh, you know just a few other things like traveling or music so great and and I think that it's fair to say there's a u2 link to your photography and that there's one place that you're frequented at least twice if not more that relates to u2 do you want to explain a little bit about one of your favorite locations oh gosh um, <laughs> I don't what, what would that be uh, the Joshua uh, tree. Uh, there's a forum, you know, to be honest, I don't believe I've ever been on there. No, no, the Joshua Tree location. I thought you'd been, this is going oh, well. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So, um, yes, yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there is a national park near me called Joshua, Joshua Tree National Park. And, uh, there's, there's quite a, a relationship between that and you two, because you two stayed, well, technically, they stayed outside of the park in the town of Joshua Tree, but they stayed in a place called the Harmony the Harmony Motel, which is a charming motel, um, and um, went inside the park. But curiously, though, uh, the interesting thing is that the tree that uh, is featured on the cover of the Joshua Tree album is actually not in Joshua Tree National Park. Oh, okay. It's in the Mojave Desert. And then everybody thinks it's in Joshua Tree National Park, but it's actually in the Mojave Preserve. And I've wow. never actually been there, but apparently the original tree that the band uh, the band posed by uh, died uh, about oh, 10 or 15 years ago. It, it just died and collapsed. But they've apparently left a plaque nearby the tree. And I've yet to visit this. Well, it's got to be a bucket list thing, Ken. I'd say, and um, a, a plaque for a tree. Wow! Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and just to our, our listeners, I think just the last exchange proves that we don't pre-brief our guests about what we're going to talk about. So that 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 that's good. Um, and, and obviously, we're not talking about the Joshua Tree either, Ken. Is we're going to talk about the album before that that you've chosen, The Unforgettable Fire. So uh, you were pretty when we talked initially about coming on the podcast. You, it didn't seem to take you a lot of 
time to come up with that choice. So is it fair to say it's a pretty pivotal album for you? It is in um, <clears throat> numerous ways because, uh, first of all, it's my favourite U2 album, uh, just pure and simple. It's my favourite. It When it came out, it made a huge impression on me. It had this beautiful atmosphere and gauze that I just really related to. Um, and it sort of bridged the gap between some of the experimental music that I was doing and rock and pop music. It fused them together in a way that I thought was just glorious. And um, so it made an enormous impression on me. And um, particularly with the overall sound and also the Edge's uh, guitar playing and his overall tone, which, which I just love. Huge influence. Mm. And it, it's fascinating you mentioned the word gauze. So w- when I did the research <laughs> that, for this that stuck, one... That stuck out for me as well. Yeah, yeah. Gauze. And it, it's in doing the research for this, um, there's numerous quotes attributed to the band, but particularly to Bono saying that he sees this album as a bit like an oil painting. It's a bit smudged in parts. It's a bit indistinct. And some of the songs, most interestingly, Pride and, and Bad, he sees as still incomplete sketches. So it's fascinating you sort of picked up on that. It's a little bit indistinct. Is that fair to say? I I really completely agree with that. And I would actually um, uh, say that um, a number of the a number of the songs on here appear like sketches. I mean, the, the least of which is uh, obviously um, the um, Elvis Presley in America one. Uh, that that seems almost like a demo, a really rough demo in in its sound. It's this sort of, um, if I remember correctly, it's a sort of a slowed down backing track from a sort of homecoming. Very, very, very much, very much considered an experiment at the time as well. Yeah, and um, then there was an instrumental. I think it's called the Fourth of July. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. That one too uh, was um, basically an improvisation where uh, Adam Clayton was uh, playing that really simple uh, uh, bass melody, and uh, the Edge joined in with him. And uh, uh, unbeknownst to either of them, Eno was recording them. And uh, that basically, he added some treatments, and uh, that was that was the finished song. And it's, it's interesting you mention that too as far as Eno recording and the recording process. So, Ken, I don't know whether you've seen the sort of 30-minute documentary they released on the making of Unforgettable Fire at the time or it was a few months after. I think it was 1985 it was released. And it, and it has heaps of footage of Eno and Le, uh, Lenoir um, 
recording the guys at Slane Castle initially and then when they went to Windmill Lane Studios. And what stood out for me is the process was so much driven by the music with Bono slotting in um, the lyrics afterwards. It reminded me a lot of um, the interview we did with Al Wright about In Excess Listen Like Thieves, which was similar as far as the guys were recording the music and then running in latest mixes for Michael Hutchins to to fit lyrics around. Have you seen that, Doco? Yes. Yes, I saw it back in the day. Uh, so I haven't seen it in, uh, what is that, 32 years or something yeah, yeah. like this. Uh, but but I did see it at the time, yes. And it's, it's um, <laughs> even I, Matthew, struggle with watching it because the guys are just so intense and earnest and, and you know, talking right. so, so deeply. It's a bit like a... A prelude to rattle and hum as the movie as far as how intense they are about everything but it is a fascinating insight into the process right yeah, they do I, take I themselves agree. very very seriously but there's uh, there's some really there, there's some humorous moments in it though where uh, i i distinctly remember this one scene where in in the documentary where they're showing bono and he's just emoting he's he's um, singing, I, I don't remember what it was or whether it even appears on the album, but he's just emoting. And then uh, the song ends, and Lanois and Eno are just sort of looking at him, and then one of them says something to the effect of, that's that's pretty good, Bono. Maybe you could stand up for this one. Yes, that's that's right. No, that is absolutely in there. And he gives it his all. And yeah, I, I'm pretty, yeah, they've been absolutely um, sarcastic, saying, yeah, you could give it a bit more oomph this this next take please um yeah it was funny as <laughs> so i mean 1984 as you said 32 33 years ago so can do you remember when it came out was it was something that had a big impact you on you at the time or it was more recently that you sort of picked it up it was a, it was almost immediate i had already liked you too i i liked um I liked boy uh, war made a huge impact especially uh especially new year's day so I had already liked them, but then when this came, this this came out, it made such a huge impact because I thought that's sort of where I want some of my music and my guitar playing and my keyboards to go. I like the effects. Uh, I I had been experimenting with um, feeding one effect into another, such as uh, feeding a delay uh, into into a reverb or then perhaps feeding that into, um, say, a chorus or a, a flanger. And and so when I heard that, it just really made such a huge impression on me. It, it was something that I wanted to pursue, not necessarily sounding like you too, but but having those sorts of sounds and those feelings and uh, that soul and that emotion, um, but, but through effects and delay and uh, through sparseness, not constantly playing all the time but letting the notes ring out and hang do, do you think that uh, i mean you, you say prior to this album you you did like you too you, you you'd enjoyed boy uh do, do you think prior to this album you were more into uh what brian eno was doing than what uh you too was was doing i mean you 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 referred to this album as having been like a bridge of those two worlds which side of the bridge were you closer to before this album, oh, I think I've always sort of straddled both fences. But um, musically, I was doing something that was much closer to Brian Eno. Mm. I had been listening to Another Green World and some of his ambient uh, 
his, some of his ambient albums, such as his airport album and things like that. And um, so, so in terms of the music that I was actually creating, I was probably more on the Eno side than the U2 side. And um, this just made such a huge impact because it felt like just, you know, with Eno, it, it always felt like I'm doing this sort of experimental niche stuff. And then when U2 sort of took it and ran with it, I realized that this, w this was of some cultural significance because um, it was bridging the gap between the two worlds. It was, it was interesting pop and rock music fused with this experimentalism. And um, I remember thinking at the time, this is our Beatles. The previous Whoa. generation had the Beatles. This is our Beatles. Sorry, I'm just going to sit quietly for a moment. So, yeah, so yeah, Ken, uh, Matthew's, uh, I think it's fair to say, a major Beatles fan. So, and, and just on the Eno thing, though, you mentioned about the two worlds coming together. I know that uh, Eno was incredibly reluctant and, and initially said no to producing the album and actually met, uh, came to do the initial uh, sessions with the intent of saying, hey, guys, here's Daniel Lenoir. He's the guy you actually want to produce it. See you later. Um, and it took it took quite a bit of convincing uh, for him to stay, and then they ended up splitting roles with Eno, sort of taking on that more conceptual um, role as far as here's how we should frame the music, and then Lenoir doing the actual technical chops around the the recording and and the instruments <clears throat> used. That's exactly what I've heard. I, I heard that initially, uh, Eno really wasn't having any of it in in either case, and. Um, so apparently Bono had called him. I, I believe he called him from this payphone and talked with Eno impassionately for for something like forty five minutes. And Brian Eno had said said to him, "You do realize that if I were to have anything to do with producing your album, I would completely change how you sound." And Bono said, "That's exactly what we want." And so Eno agreed to meet with him, bringing Lanois along, just, just as you described. And um, apparently, apparently Bono's powers of persuasion and the, the I, I think how earnest and emotional you 2 is, I think, I think just won them over, you, you know, probably just as much as people as, as musically. No, I agree. And I, th I think the castle helped too. I mean, what comes across to me in that documentary is just the, how stunning that castle is and as, as uh, pretentious as it can be to record in it, uh, in retrospect, <laughs> I can see why they chose it. Oh, it's gorgeous. I, yeah, I always wished I could uh, record in a castle like that. Absolutely. You know, we, we, have a, we have a dearth of castles around California. Yeah, same here, same here. <laughs> you, 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 can't, you can't just commission a McMansion with a 30-foot high ceiling? Uh, I'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> So take us back to your first listen, Ken. Um, do, do you remember where you were and what you were like? What you know? What format was it on? What What did you do? What What was the situation when you had that first listen of the album? Sure, it was on CD. I bought the album right away because I had heard that Eno and Lanois were producing them, and so I bought it. I, I don't remember when, but it was it was for sure within the uh, the, uh, the first week, and. Um, I listened to it with headphones on lying in bed and it, it made a huge impression on me because just f 
right from right from the start. You could you could I mean, even within the first 10 or 20 seconds, I found myself thinking this is different. This is completely different. And uh, this is this is uh, what I was hoping for. And um, you could you could hear that the drums sounded different. Uh, it was more mysterious. It was more effects laden. And uh, it it just it basically just reeled me in from the start and pretty much from the first lesson to uh, sorry, listen from the first listen to this day. It's been my favorite U2 album. And for that matter, one of my favorite albums of all time. What what song do you think made the most impact on you at the time? So the title song. So what, one of the yeah. conventional songs on it. Uh, so one of the ones with with less of Brian Eno's uh, touch, as it were. I mean that, that that's that's one that, uh, according to legend, at anyway, uh, pretty pretty much uh, Eno uh, took a back seat and said, you know, Daniel can do this one. Yeah, it was too conventional for him. He couldn't really do much with it. Um, right, that one and uh, same with Pride. Um, yeah, that one the, and Pride, the, right? Uh, but that that was that was the one that kind of grabbed you. That's 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 the one. It was it's it's um it, it refers to uh, an art gallery exhibit about Hiroshima, if I remember correctly. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, but it, but it, but it's not actually about Hiroshima. No, no. Only the title is from that. Uh, it was a, I believe it was inspired by that. But um, I did, to be quite honest, I'm still not entirely sure what the lyrics are about. There's some people uh-huh. who think it's about uh, about Jesus because there's um. You know, there's some lines about that uh, that that might imply it's, it's, that. It's Bono. There are all the, all the lyrics are about Jesus. <laughs> well, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some people speculate that it perhaps could be about a uh, a one night stand or uh, you know a sort of impassionate affair. Um, I have no idea what it's about, but I just know what, that. What's it about to you? I I, I truly don't know uh, what it's about to me. I just the the whole thing comes together with with how the lyrics sound, perhaps how the sound song sounds as just something that is just utterly magical, that it's this world that I love to stick my head into. And um, and I, I come away really inspired and um, oddly calmer. And and probably the keyboard nerd in me, Ken, and I know you've got a keyboard nerd in you as well. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, I mean, the Fairlight CMI was getting fairly well ensconced in, in use in, in albums, but obviously not within U2's 
um, back catalogue. I think that stood out for me, the use of that instrument within that song. De- definitely. And, and the, um, and the strings as well, which I thought, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I had always had the impression that that was sort of an Eno influence, although it, uh, although I don't believe he actually uh, did the score or anything. But um, I, I had always imagined that that would be the um, Eno influence on this album, or, or, or the he, song, he, rather. He, uh, Eno had been doing um, experimentation with strings on other projects as well. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that he wasn't doing orchestrations as such, but he was using strings as, you know... Um, an instrument as as a sort of tool in the toolbox for uh, his projects more broadly, and 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 brought them to bear with you too uh, on on this one. Uh, in, in, in in a lot of ways, I, I actually think of the Unforgettable Fire as more of a Brian Eno album than as a U two album. Where he's, he's really oh, he's, he's 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 kind of using U two as an instrument for a project of his. Definitely, definitely, in a way, or perhaps a project with him and Lanois. I mean, him and Lanois yeah. were doing some of the ambient albums, and it was almost like they they thought, okay, we have some more musicians that we can we can um, uh, treat or or take them to uncomfortable positions or experiment with. Yeah, like like just telling Bono, stand there and improvise, and we're just going to record it, and 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 we're just going to take the bits that we want and use the things. You know, clearly, this isn't really Bono's thing. This, right. this is something Eno's doing, and he's using Bono as an instrument. Right, exactly. And and what's what's interesting too is you um, you can argue too that he totally changed the direction of them for for many albums to come. Um, I'm trying to think yeah. how many of their albums he produced. He was definitely involved with. Um, I'm just having a quick look here. Yeah, Actung Baby. Um, and I thought right. he'd been involved in pop too, but I think I've got no, no no line on the horizon. How to dismantle an atomic bomb? So I mean, he yeah, he's had a massive impact. Uh, but I think this was Eno's only involvement. I think Ken wasn't it? Uh, oh no, Joshua with, with, Tree. Sorry. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Joshua. Right, Tree. but but he had a more recent one with that song um, "Surrender," I believe. Um, what what album is that from? Uh, the most recent one. It's either the, song, the most songs of innocence. Was it? Um, boy, I, uh, I'm really so, bad with them. It, it's one of the last two. It, it, I, sorry, I believe. Sorry, it I, I don't have before it the most recent. Yeah, also called the mandatory album. I like to think of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and and, and aside from um, the unforgettable fire, Ken, um, and I mean. Pro, Pride is is obviously was one of their biggest hits of all time. What what other songs really stand out for you on that album? Oh, um, you know it's it's funny to to think about this because, um, in a, in a way that I don't with other albums, I frequently think of this as as one work. <laughs> so it, it's it's yeah, hard okay. to separate uh, apart from that. But um, it's it's actually a really really good point you've made there because I mean I've listened to this album dozens of times but I, I did the usual I'll listen to it three times before the podcast and I still really struggle to pick out song titles besides the obvious ones like um, Unforgettable Fire Pride and and Bad the rest of them I really struggle so it sort of adds credence to your point that it's really one work. Because if you tell me which one's MLK, I'd be hard pushed to tell you which song it was. 
aside from being the yeah, last actually, one. I was going to um, mention that as one of my favorites. That that song sounds like a hymn to me. just a uh, there's there's a uh, keyboard drone and bono and that's it and um so that one that one is such a beautiful song it's it's stark it's just absolutely gorgeous it's meditative um it has, has that gauze once again um and um it just it sounds like a hymn that uh, something perhaps an ancient song that someone might have sung at church yeah, absolutely. And yeah. see, now that you've mentioned it, I can totally hear that song in my head. But if you'd said, what's the name of it, I would have been hard pushed yeah. to remember. Uh, and, MLK remains a sort of cornerstone of their live shows even now, where you know right. most of what's on The Unforgettable Fire is rarely, if ever, performed. But MLK is there on, in practically every show. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, they, they, uh, obviously, uh, Pride is a you know, huge concert hit. And MLK. But they hardly ever perform it. Oh, no, it's still one. No, it's considered one of their most performed songs live. Is it? Yeah, MLK yeah, yeah. and, uh, yeah, and, and Bad. And that's, uh, those are, those are the, uh, staples from this album, uh, for concerts anyway. And I think, I don't know in the last tour, Bad has fallen off a little bit. And I'd argue it's because the, the requirements on Bono's voice for that song, I'd say he's probably just aged a little bit too much or, or they've dropped it down a few semitones. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, he's definitely not hitting the high notes like he was before. No. Um, and, I mean, for me, that's the most powerful song on that album is is Bad. Um, and that Live A performance, which I, I believe you mm. looked at, oh. you, uh, it's, like, it's just incredible. I mean, it's 11 minutes. It's still a bit pretentious, but that's with the benefit of hindsight. But he, <laughs> he, he gave... Right. A bit pretentious, yeah, a little bit. You know, if you're getting... There those, are... it's, pre- it's pretentious even by Bono standards. Come on. Right. They're they're sort of a pretentious band, but they just do it well. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. After, after the Queen Live Aid performance, I'd put that one pretty much up there. After that, exactly. Yeah. So bad, bad is definitely up there as well. So Unforgettable Fire, MLK, and Bad for me are are really standouts. But you know, I just absolutely love Promenade and Fourth of July as well.
also, um, this this is something that people don't mention very much because it's it's sort of an overlooked song. But um, I, I think as someone who plays a bit of guitar, Indian Summer Sky, um, the you know, particularly the intro, but all the way through, there's these shards of guitar chords that that um, that the edge uses. It, there's a sense of violence with with his uh, guitar cording. And I really like that. It's just, it, it makes it really powerful. And I personally think I'd love to have about six episodes just discussing The Edge. He's the guy that he, if I had a choice of hanging out with one of them for a day, he'd be the one. I don't know about you guys. I'm pretty sure, Matthew, you wouldn't choose Bono. Or could be wrong. I, I would not. Look, if, if you said to me, uh, gun to your head, you have to hang out with a member of you too. Uh, the, the, the Edge would be the one. I, 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 I think he's, he's, he's the one that I think has you know something interesting to say and isn't completely up himself, but right. you know, <laughs> he's philosophical, but he's not completely full of himself. I think he he ha- he's able to, you know, parody himself a little bit. Right, right. Which I'm 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 really not sure Bono can do that. Uh, um, I'm I'm not sure either. <laughs> I mean, he tried he tried in theory with the the Zuropa album and that, as far as you know, uh, parodying the rock star. But I think it was more parroting the broader concept of a rock star than himself. He 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 went right the uh, right the whole way around and became the parody, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as spending time with the, I think the edge. Although it depends on the purpose. So if I was wanting to, you know, get all the juicy rock and roll lifestyle stories, um, Adam Clayton would be the one to talk to. Um, I don't I I don't know. I think I think. He'd, he'd be a bit embarrassed about all the rock and roll lifestyles. Oh, I lifestyle think he would be, frankly. No, I think you're right. And, I, mean, I, I, I think it would be a bit insensitive to ask him about the rock and roll yeah. lifestyle stories, frankly. Right, but he's the one who used to run down hotel, hotel lobbies naked or whatever it was, or hotel hallways naked. And, and, They've all and done that, haven't they? I, I don't know. I thought it was more him. Did, did, but, didn't they um, record part of the Unforgettable Fire naked? Yes, they did in Slade yes. Castle, yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I don't like that's, that's, that's a little bit that. different from partying with supermodels and running down the hallway naked. A little bit, yes. Yeah. Well, it was around that supermodel time that I've only seen you two live three times, and I'm about to ask you, Ken, about your live experiences. But uh, one of the three times I, I've seen you two live was, I think, the only time, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they've played without Adam Clayton, which was at Sydney. Oh. Uh, on the, huh. the zoo, uh, it was called the Zoo. Zoomerang tour, which was part of the Zuropa tour, a Zoo TV tour, more worldwide. Um, and I can't remember what the reason was. I, I won't go as far as saying it was definitely drugs, but there was some issue and he wasn't able to appear on stage that night. So his bass technician stepped in and played that show. Oh, interesting. Uh, they've, they've been fully intact all three times I've seen them. Okay. All right. So you've seen them three times? Over what time frames, Ken? Um, ooh, 85, 80, 
No, I'm sorry. I've seen them four times. Sorry. Uh, 85, 87, 2009, and uh, this year. Okay, so the Joshua Tree. And I, I did see your pictures of the Joshua Tree too. It, it looks spectacular. Mm-hmm. It, it really was. So the last two times were were in Ro- uh, at the Rose Bowl, which is enormous. It it um, it's approaching one hundred thousand people. Yeah, well, that's wow. that's that's a big venue. <laughs> uh, yes. um, and, and 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 everybody there felt that Bono was singing to them individually, didn't they? Uh, probably so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he does have a way of um, engaging people and. Uh, with with a U two with a U two concert, it's frequently an emotional roller coaster. It, it, they they really are very good at uh, pushing emotional buttons. Mm. And I'd I'd argue, and and this comes from someone that is a big U two fan. I'd argue that they have to do that with their music because aside from Bono, they're a bloody boring band on stage. <laughs> I suppose you're right. <laughs> um, I mean, compared to some, I, and I mean, I tend to compare everything against Springsteen, but as far as the dynamism on, on stage, you two definitely aren't renowned for that, although Bono definitely does his best to keep things theatrical and, and moving, but they're not, they're not exactly, you know, thrashing away on stage. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, the, I mean, you'll get Bono, at least he's sort of moving. He's he's usually swaying, and and yeah. the other two, uh, well, you know. <laughs> the, yeah. other thing, the other thing that stood out for me from the Unforgettable Fire documentary is how cheerful and animated Larry Mullen Jr. was as a drummer back then versus every single interview I've seen since where he never smiles or rarely smiles and never says more than four words. No, it, it, um, uh, more recent things. He he almost seems uh, like he's uh, he has autism. Yeah, yeah. I I I don't know if you saw the um, uh, Graham Norton show appearance, the, the the one where Bono told everybody he's got glaucoma or whatever it is. Oh, okay. Um, um, yeah. Uh, Adam, no, sorry, it was it was Larry. Uh, okay. practically didn't didn't say two words the whole thing. You know that. Norton was really trying to draw him out and get him to interact and get him to say something and be part of it. He was sitting there just absolutely stock silent. Which oh, was interesting. Odd. Yeah, and <laughs> interesting. And it comes across to me at least as w- weariness with the whole thing and that he's sick of it, even though that may absolutely not be the case. Uh, yeah, but it certainly comes across like that. Like, uh, why why wouldn't you speak or be more engaged? Well, I don't well, know. Why would you go on a talk show and not talk? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> we, we don't have this issue on this podcast. <laughs> no. No, we can just keep talking and talking and talking. Uh, unlike you guys, I've only <clears throat> actually seen you two live once. Uh, okay. and that, was, that was on their uh, 360 uh, tour oh, yeah. a few years ago. Um, where, you know, the, the stage is this big round um, platform right. with, with spokes coming out of it. And... For the vast majority of the concert, the four members of the band are on entirely different parts of the platform. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and it was this a really surreal and strange experience of watching a band that, that they weren't a band. There were, there were four individual musicians in like entirely different parts of the stadium. It, it, it felt completely isolated to me. It was, it was a very, very strange experience. Just, just, just you know, t- talking about what, the, what they're like as a, as a live band, it's like, 
don't feel like I've seen them as a live band. I've, I've seen four guys wandering around on a big circle. And I think that links in with their dynamism on stage too. I, I think they are, you know, brothers in arms from all those years. But I think like a lot of those bands after so long, in this case 40 plus years, that I think distance is what keeps them together. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps so. It's perhaps like so. it's like the Stones. I, I have no doubt when the Stones come on stage, the first time they've actually seen each other face to face that day is just backstage in the two minutes before. <laughs> it's, they're not hanging out. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I don't know if this is true or not. I have the impression that you two is a little bit closer than the Stones yeah, are. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely. They've they've been through a lot together. Um, yeah. And that, that Unforgettable Fire documentary, again, I mean, they lived together for the camaraderie at Slane Castle to sort of, you know, make sure they're all on the same page. I, I doubt they would do that now, but I think they'd be able to pull it off better than the Stones or a lot of the other older bands. Well, they've, they've all got families now. That's right. <laughs> right, that's, what, that's what's changed. And so, Ken, what, what, is there anything about, or there probably is, about the album that still gets you going now? If you put it on tomorrow and have a listen, uh, you know, does it still inspire you to create yourself or has other impacts on you? It does. It does. I, I, still, I still am inspired by the overall sound and the, the emotional resonance of the, uh, of the songs. I still tend to play the whole album all the way through as if it were one one piece of work. Uh, so I still get the same feeling that I did uh, when I first heard it. And, and that's, yeah, that's an unusual thing. It, it, it is. It's in, it's a, a remarkably, at least for me, it's a remarkably timeless sort of album. Yeah. I, and that's interesting. That's interesting. Cause I, I don't think that it, I, I, it feels like a very eighties album to me, but so, so, so that's interesting. Out of time. It does sound, it, it has a lot of the hallmarks of an 80s album, but but I also feel like it steps outside that somehow and feels very timeless as well. Mm. Can, can, I, can I just ask, as, as a sort of a, a companion thing, I mean, um, Wide Awake in America, the, the EP that followed it, um, where right. you know, it, it, it's, it's supplemented by, for instance, a, a longer um, version of... Of bad, I think it is yeah, probably it bad, bad and a yeah. sort of, um, a, 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 sort of a, a, a live version of bad because because of course the um, the studio version on Unforgettable Fire was criticised as sort of not really working as a studio song but as a live song. Of course, it yes really it's astounding you know, live. It, 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 it comes to life and and on that EP it was released I think like six months or seven months after the Unforgettable Fire. Right, uh, there's, there's 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 a live after. version of bad. Um, do, do, do you sort of see that as kind of of a piece with the Unforgettable Fire, or or do you still see them as, as separate works? No, no, I I always associated them together. Uh, it, it felt like uh, the same sort of thing, and it wouldn't surprise me if um, some of the other songs from uh, from Wide Awake in America uh, were done at the same time or conceived at the same time as as Unforgettable Fire. Um, uh, actually, Three Sunrises is also one of my favorite songs. Really? Yes. Because okay, that, that, that was a B-side, wasn't it? That's a good question. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, whip, whip, whipping out the uh, Wikipedia here. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, we're, we're on it because that's what I'm doing too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and just on, while you're looking up Wikipedia on the issue of 
that, that follow-up release and also them being a close unit. One of the funniest quotes from that documentary on The Unforgettable Fire is Bono trying to be deep and meaningful and basically saying we're so close that we really are a four-legged table. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's... Right. I, I'd rather you were a four-legged table. I, thought, I would have thought that was the base requirement to be successful rather than a three-legged table. And a five-legged... A, three, a three-legged mm-hmm. table can work very well. <laughs> With books or something. It could, it could. Um, you know, and a five-legged table doesn't mean you're necessarily better. So I just I thought it was... You can't a... get as many chairs in. <laughs> that's but that's right. I, I did... <laughs> I did, I did really appreciate that sentiment in a way. I mean, philosophically, they're basically saying that they all go at it together. Yes. And it, it's more equal. And it, it's unlike, say, what you would expect from, like, say, a Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan yes. band where you would expect that they're the dominant songwriter yeah. and um, their word is last. So I, I agree. I think the only two bands you can argue are that communal that I'm aware of would be you two, and in the Australian context, and you may not have heard of them, Kenny's Hunters and Collectors had that real, not communist, but that real communal feel to everything. Right, right. I'm, I, I've heard of them, but I'm not super familiar yeah. with them. Uh, but um, yeah, so the, the Three Sunrises is another, another favorite. I also really like um, uh, Love Comes Tumbling. Uh, which is, I just think is gorgeous. That you know, that definitely sounds a little bit more stereotypically '80s, I suppose. But in in some respects, but um, the Three Sunrises, um, I love everything about that, including once again the guitar playing, which is just stunning to me. And so, did we get to the bottom of whether it was a B side or not? You know, I, I still have not found it. Oh, Wikipedia, you let us down. Wikipedia is failing me. It, it, it has a, a separate entry for just about every song that U2 has ever um, done, but not for the Three Sunrises. Well, obviously it appeared on this this EP, it, but it, 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 uh, yeah. Wikipedia states, it also can be found on the B-Sides disc of the limited edition of the best, best of 1980 compilation. But what was it so, the B-Side of? Yeah. <laughs> the whole album. Yeah. It's, um, I'm so, sure, I mean, U2.com, I haven't been on, I used to be a subscriber on U2.com and they had a really active uh, forum on there. I'm not sure whether it's still there, but I guarantee you could ask that question and get an answer within 22 seconds. Probably. <laughs> so I think, you know, any other thoughts on Unforgettable Fire? No, it's, it's as you say, though, it was a real, um, a real turning point for the band and... Um, highly influential and i think even though uh you know one of the criticisms launched against the album was that some of the songs were unfinished or they were sketches to me the highs of the unforgettable fire are higher than a lot of the highs from uh the joshua tree and uh there's just some something about the emotional potency about the unforgettable fire that really speaks to me, even though I, I like Joshua Tree almost as much as the as as the unforgettable fire, but there's just something that really speaks to me about the unforgettable fire. So we, maybe we hey, should have said, this guys, point. guys, um, it's the it's one of the B sides on the 12 inch version of okay. the single of the unforgettable fire. Ah, uh, there you go. Um, there you go. And Ken, I feel like we should have set this podcast up as a debate of Unforgettable Fire versus Joshua Tree. Because, yeah, I totally agree on the, the sketches. 
and then I'd I'd argue Joshua Tree the fully fledged paintings, um, which has right. Its advantage I would agree. Of, yeah, uh, amazing. I would agree, and I can completely understand why Joshua Tree in in many ways overshadows the Unforgettable Fire because it is more completely conceived, and I believe it's also more consistent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There 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 are more strong tracks on it. I, yeah, I, I really believe that, and I can completely understand why many people would favor the Joshua Tree over this. It's just that for some reason, uh, something about this just really speaks to me. Even the more unfinished uh, sketches, they just really speak to me. Can I throw in a theory? Um, that, you know, the, the, the two of the two of them are you know the the U two and Eno uh, period. Um, Unforgettable Fire, I would say, has more of a balance in favor of Eno. Joshua Tree has more of a balance in favor of you too. Yeah, with with an mm-hmm. Eno influence. So, and my suspicion, it, is that as, as somebody who stands more on this on the Eno side of the bridge, it right. speaks to you more. Right. That, 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 that that's sense, that's a right? theory. Right. And yeah, you very well could be onto something. I I also think that um, perhaps Lanois had uh, more of an influence on the Joshua Tree. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I also think the working pace. I haven't actually looked at how the exact um, information how they recorded Joshua Tree, but I mean, with Unforgettable Fire, they had so much unfinished stuff in those last two weeks that they were putting in twenty-hour days to get it finished, and I, I can't imagine that was the process for the Joshua Tree. Yeah. I, I suspect I, I by should, Joshua Tree they were setting their own deadlines. That's right. Frankly, yeah, yeah. I sh- I should mention by the way that um, I've actually met Daniel Lanois about three times. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So um, he used to, perhaps he still does, but he lived in Los Angeles for a while. He lived in um, an area called Echo Park, which is a subsection of uh, of uh, Los Angeles, and I'd run into him a number of times, either at gigs or or um, he would have. Um, he, he he would have smaller shows and I would uh, just sort of run into him and and speak to him real briefly. So it, it's not like I'm friends with him and call him up and go bowling with him. But uh, I have met him several times and uh, he's he, he's he's very charismatic. Um, and all three times that I've met him, uh, he's just he just seems to love women. I mean, he <laughs> he will he will just flirt with just about every woman who comes his way he just loves them so uh but yeah definitely an interesting guy and um one of the best producers working for sure and ken i can't remember the context of the story but i know one of the the photos i most associate with you is you standing next to jimmy page oh yeah 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 so how did that come about so all right so Um, I had just started getting into photography and on Facebook, one of my friends, Crystal, who is a um, who is a journalist, she was working for the Huffington Post at the time. And she she announced on Facebook that uh, she was very excited because she was going to interview Jimmy Page for for the movie documentary. It might get loud which, if you remember, was also done with Jack White and The Edge. Oh, yep. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Right? And so I immediately uh, I immediately uh, followed up a comment uh, saying something like, hey, if you need a photographer, please let me know. <laughs> Just putting it out there, right? And 
So she messaged me and said, actually, I do need a photographer. So you're on. And so I went to, um, it, it was held in a uh, large hotel on Wilshire. Uh, and uh, so we had a, um, uh, I was photographing uh, the, the press conference in which uh, the three, um, well, it was, it was um, Jimmy Page, the producer, I cannot remember the producer uh, right off the top of my head, and Jack White were fielding questions from the press. And so I was taking photos and, and everything like that. And then Crystal came up to me and said, okay, so um, you know, make sure your camera's ready because we're going to interview them. And I said, what? <laughs> and she said, we're interviewing them one-on-one. -on -one. And I had not known this, but she managed to uh, uh, get this going. So we were there for just maybe about five minutes. I walked in and... Uh, Jimmy Page, uh, who is extremely engaging and cordial, very friendly, um, looked at me and he said, did you get enough photos? And I said, uh, uh, yes, yes, I did. And he said, OK, because um, I saw you taking photos and then and then I sort of lost track of you. And and what had happened was that I was with the press corps and I just sort of snuck off to the side of the room and sat down on the floor and then continued taking photos and he didn't see me there. But somehow he had noted that out of this crowd of what, you know, like uh, 60 people, I had snuck off. Mm. And so I thought that was really quite remarkable. And uh, no offense to Jack White, you know, I, I really like Jack White and I respect him and all, but I, I had really hoped that the edge would be there. Yeah. And because I really wanted to, I wanted to meet the edge pretty much, you know, almost as much as Jimmy Page. And um, so Jimmy Page, by the way, is um, one of my favorite guitar players. That, that, they're pretty much one and two, I think. Yeah. And um, so, uh, uh, so I was disappointed that he wasn't there. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, I was just thrilled uh, to, to meet Jimmy Page, who who was really articulate, engaging, friendly, seemed real sharp, and looked real healthy when I saw him. That's all you can ask for. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's even a U2 reference yeah. in there. So I was about to say, I, I'm going to argue it was Brian Eno that was the producer on that album, even though it wasn't, just to keep the U2 references going. I <laughs> <laughs> kind of imagine Brian Eno producing Jack White and Jimmy Page. That'd be interesting. That would be, yeah, that would be pretty trippy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, I think, I think we've covered it nicely. Again, thank you so much. Um, and we will have a link in the show notes to Ken's website. Um, Ken's probably undersold himself a little bit on his photography. I know um, you've A, been nominated. And, and am I wrong, Ken, have received some rewards for your photography? Uh, awards, sorry. I rewards? have. I've been really lucky. I mean, when, when you consider that I only started doing night photography about five years ago, I feel like I've I've uh, received a fair amount of accolades. So um, um, I, I don't know. Um, the, the thing that uh, leaps to mind, uh, two things that leap to mind is um, I've been featured several times as the um, photographer, the travel photographer or uh, travel photo of the year for the Los Angeles Times and I have been featured in there for about the last four or five years. And um, I've had a print... 
I, I've had one photo of the ancient bristlecone pine forest in National Geographic books, which is just huge Ooh. and enormous, and um, uh, features in uh, the Smithsonian, a number of other newspapers, magazines, and things like that. But 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 those first two really stick out for me. Um, the LA Times, partially because when I was a kid, uh, I used to look through the, the travel section, and I would be just gobsmacked by these gorgeous photos of these really exotic far-off lands and then to be actually not only featured in that same section but actually win some prizes um just really means just as much to me as the national geographic uh appearance yeah. Well done. Congratulations. And, uh, I, I believe the reports are still unconfirmed that you're the photographer on U2's next release, the, the, Joshua, <laughs> the Joshua Tree plaque. Um, That's I, right. Especially, especially <laughs> if they want um, uh, a, a night, uh, a night photo with uh, light painting. You know, a, some sort of a long exposure night photography. Yeah, you're the man. I think. Yeah, I'm. I'm the person they should call. <laughs> Ken, thank you. Sure, it's my pleasure. It, it, this was a lot of fun, and perhaps we could do it again sometime. Absolutely. One man come in the name of love. One man come and go. One man come here to justify. One man to So there we have it. Um, I think we all came that, to some sort of consensus. I think we. I, I got to tell you, the the revelation for me out of that was that the Joshua Tree, the cover of the Joshua Tree album, is not actually in Joshua Tree Memorial, or jo- Joshua Tree Monument Na- National Park. There, uh, that it, that it's in the Mojave Desert, or, or that it was in the Mojave Desert, and now there's a plaque there. You know, well, that 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 made me think of. Um, you, you know old El Paso taco kits? Yes. Uh, the, 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 the Mexican Mexican food brand, yeah, and, they, and they got they got they got the saguaro cactuses on the on the logo yeah, for yeah. old El Paso. There are no saguaro cactuses anywhere near El Paso. Okay. <laughs> so, so the fact that the, the 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 Joshua tree that's on the front of the Joshua tree isn't in Joshua Tree. And I gotta say, I'm glad it, it, I found that. All out. of a sudden, that 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 album has become like taco mix for me. Yeah, that, <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad I found it out from the viewpoint. It is one of those locations I would love to see before I die, and I think I would have been devastated had I gone all the way to the Joshua Tree National Park and then found out that the one from the album's <laughs> not even. Oh, uh, you're, you're you're in the wrong place, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that. That that's in the Mojave Desert, but but uh, don't go because uh, it's not there not there anyway. Yeah, that's right. Well, you can <laughs> in, see the plaque. Your photographs. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the plaque. Um, Look at the plaque. There's a plaque for a tree. That that amazes me. I, I like it somehow. I like I like the fact that they, they memorialize a tree. I just love how there's those key rock icons as far as Jim Morrison's grave in, in Paris, and now we've got the plaque where the Joshua tree was in the Mojave mm. Desert. It's it's e- equally important places, <laughs> I think. Yes. Equally important. See, you you've come over to the dark side, Matthew. <laughs> So, yeah, look, a huge thanks. Only, only a little. 
No, that, that, that was a fun talk. That was a fun yeah, talk. Yeah, huge thanks to Ken. And, and it is one of the strangest things about the internet that Ken and I have hung out online for so many years and it's, it's absolutely lovely to talk to him um, in person, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, we're, I think that's it for, for this episode. We will be back, as always, uh, with epi- uh, in about a month's time with episode eight. Um, I can't allude to an album this stage. We've got a couple of balls in the air, although one I will allude to... Um, that is coming up, but maybe not next month. And I haven't actually told you this yet, Matthew, is uh, I think Van Morrison's going to be a topic of discussion in the next few months. For a second, I thought you were going to tell me Van Morrison was going to be our guest. <laughs> oh, oh, give me time. <laughs> give that, 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 would, that would do me. That'd be, that'd be <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd find that too stressful. He's, I think he's a bit of a prickly character from everything I've heard. Really? I, I've heard, I, I, I could I, be wrong. See, I, 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 know, I know very little about him except the music. Yeah, so. I've, I've heard he's not the most fun to deal with, but that's, you know, who knows. Um, Look, I, th- I think that's the kind of thing that, that happens to you and when, when you're, you know, that famous for that long. You know, you, you, you end up finding it difficult to trust people. That's right. That, maybe that's Larry Mullen Jr.'s issue. Maybe. Maybe. We love you, Larry. Or I love you, at least. Um, all right. Is it, is all... I, I don't know him. So no. I don't. I don't want to declare, no, declare my undying love for him. <laughs> Just at this point, I think we should meet first. Maybe <laughs> go for coffee. Uh, and as, again, one last keyboard nerd reference. I'd like to give a shout out to Terry Lawless, U2's longtime keyboard player that sits below the stage. Um, as always, if you'd like to offer an opinion, suggestion, or even offer yourself up as a guest, we're, st- we're still up for guests, although we, we do have a few um, on the boil, but we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to come on and talk about an album. Um, please do feel free to... Or eat. entomology, if you want <laughs> to talk about entomology. Oh, see, see, that's good. That's the fifth episode in a row you've got that in. That's good. <laughs> um, please feel free to email us at contact... It's my thing now. It is your thing. <laughs> Um, do con- uh, email us at contact at themusicweek.net or visit our f- f- vastly growing um, Facebook page, Music Dissectors. Um, to keep things spread well among the decades, if you have an album from the 80s, 90s or 2000s, we'd especially love to hear from you as far as being a guest. Um, previous episodes of the show are definitely on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher and TuneIn. And all episodes are on our website at themusicweek.net. Uh, while I think of it, too, a big shout-out um, to a couple of great people, if I didn't do so last episode, that have given reviews on iTunes. Those reviews on iTunes actually make a huge difference as far as the podcast getting out there. Um, if you do have an iTunes account and a listing, would love if you could provide uh, a review. So, but particular thanks to um, Chris and Lynette for their um, reviews, including one on the US iTunes store. Ooh. So we're international, Matthew. Wow. And I don't think it was a previous I, I, guest. I, I'm, I'm going to have to start getting prickly with people. <laughs> That's right. Now, now, now that we're famous. My goodness. <laughs> so, yes, thanks very much for listening and thanks as always. No photos. No photos. <laughs> Thank you as always, Matthew, giving up a Saturday morning. And, um, yeah, we'll be back in a few weeks to a month as always. And in the meantime, find a new album to love. 